This is an amazing book, she said quietly. It teaches you to value your dreams, but to be wary of them also, to look for integrity in unusual places. Anyway, she enjoyed reading it, and that counts too, can't you see? The primary thing is that we should enjoy reading it. We'll put that as number one on the list, read for pleasure. Right. I mean, that pleasure is a difficult pleasure often, it's a challenging pleasure, and yes, they also do teach us things. But if you, if you only want to teach us stuff, literature is not the way to do that. I know. You know, it's the job of literature to please, to delight. There's such an awesome quote by Werner Herzog, the, the filmmaker, where he says the telephone book is full of facts, but it doesn't <laughs> give you any kind of spiritual experience or make your heart leap like poetry does. Right. Hi, everyone. Today, my wife, Claire Akebrandt, and I will be chatting about how to read books and why. And to help us answer these questions, we'll be reading from Azar Nafisi's fabulous memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran. Yes, so welcome to the start of a new class. I started these podcasts as a pandemic teaching tool last fall. I do like that Zoom enables us to connect with each other, but I am sensitive also to Zoom burnout and feel like a lot of class content doesn't have to be video-based. I wanted to offset the risk of Zoom burnout by having a place to talk about the readings in a different way. It was an experiment that I think paid off. My students last semester seemed to like it, so I'll be continuing these podcasts throughout the winter. This is a kind of preliminary podcast to talk about some approaches to reading that I think will be helpful as we proceed. All of these books are exciting, adventurous, funny, inspiring, beautiful, but they are also difficult. Some stretches may even be boring. They're quite old. They can feel opaque at times. It wasn't too long ago that I was in your shoes. I remember having to read notes from the underground for a class and being, I'll confess, bored out of my mind. I just had way too many other things to care about. I was in love at the time with Claire, who later became my wife. You'll hear from her uh, in a minute. And I had other classes, you know, I had to work and more or less just wanted to pay the minimum amount of attention to these books, many of which seemed like historical documents of no real interest or relevance to me. And this, I'm speaking as an English major who has always loved reading, right? But now, Notes from the Underground and all of these other texts have incredible interest and relevance to me. They are about me. So I ask myself, what changed exactly? I don't entirely know. I can piece together, I think, at least some of the answer. I left BYU and had to learn how to live. I had to have the experience of being a poor graduate student for many years, of becoming a father and learning how to deal with vulnerable and suffering children. I had to have the experience of my own dad suddenly dying from a heart attack, you know, and the very normal grief and regret and not being able to say goodbye. I had to experience all the normal crises of faith that one goes through throughout life. You know, in other words, I was confronted slowly over a period of years with the problem of how to live in a world of change and vulnerability and suffering and entropy and death. This is a problem we all have to face. I may be a few years older than you, but we all know how hard it is sometimes to be alive. This is not a piece of knowledge that one needs to live for very long to acquire. We all suffer the death or illness of loved ones. We all know what it's like to feel stupid or shy or ugly or we know what the pangs of unrequited love feel like we've all thought to ourselves you know things like why does my life matter in the grand scheme of things or why does 
uh, hard work matter? Why do good deeds matter or good grades? Will they matter in five years or 50 years or 5,000 years or 50,000 years, right? Why get up in the morning? You know, everyone listening probably knows of someone or is someone who wakes up every day, goes to a job that they hate um, to earn money, to buy stuff that they don't need and, you know, displays their life on social media in an attempt to display a kind of happiness that they know they don't actually have. This is partly why, you know, not to get too morbid, but suicide rates are going up. The opioid crisis is not going away. Everyone's asking themselves what matters. People are afraid maybe nothing matters. Questions like this will come up explicitly in the texts that we read. You know, Ivan Karamazov doesn't understand why we should be living in a world where innocent children suffer and die, for example. Or Ivan Ilyich in Tolstoy's novel comes to the very end of his life and suddenly realizes that nothing that he did meant very much. All of the things he poured his time and attention into weren't things of ultimate value. These kinds of attitudes began to overwhelm me. Maybe they've already overwhelmed you. If they haven't, they will. And it was when I was feeling overwhelmed by them that I started to read or reread some of these great books. And they kind of saved my life, you know, or, or at the very least, they taught me how and where to find meaning in the world. These are books that depict in very exciting ways people who had to face the same problems we all have to face. Some of these texts might not interest you or seem relevant to you now at this time in your life. They might be slow release bombs for you, right? You might only realize in the coming years how they matter. Some of them you might have to reread after you've had certain experiences that they that they depict. But some of these, I'm sure, if you read them with an open heart and with full attention, you will be able to connect deeply with. 5,000 years of geniuses, you know, since the beginning of written literature, 5,000 years of geniuses have faced existential problems and have asked how to live in a world of suffering. And they've told each other stories that can provide answers. You know, when I read King Lear, I feel like I'm being taught something about how to live in the face of my inevitable death and what to do with the anger that the death of a loved one can cause. Taught me how to look at a world where people are struggling with minimum wage or have to wait, you know, raise kids on that wage or, or single parents. It taught me how to look at a world like that and say, meaning can be found. Joy can still be found. Cervantes taught me how to dream. But it also taught me, like you'll hear one of Azar Nafisi's students saying, it also taught me that we should be wary of our dreams as well. Dostoevsky offers me some kind of solace an affirmation that I'm not alone in my suffering, that for all humans the world has seemed hopeless, but that there are also new or different or other ways of seeing the world that are both truthful and full of hope. So we read, I don't want to get, I don't want to sound too grandiose, but we read to not die, basically. <laughs> and if you read these stories as if they were about you, and you read them awake, and you read them when you're alone, and you reread them, think that you'll feel the same way. People often ask themselves if art is utilitarian, if it's meant to serve some kind of purpose. Or there's another school of thought that, you know, art for art's sake, that art is meant to do no practical work in the world, simply meant to be beautiful, and that beauty needs to have no purpose. You'll hear in the chat between me and Claire coming up here that uh, we kind of that we kind of come down on both sides of this issue. You know, the Roman poet Horace says that poetry should delight and instruct. And I think he's right. I think it can and should do both. You know, read these books as if they were scriptural or subscriptural. Find examples to emulate. Find counterexamples to avoid. 
But when you find these counterexamples, be charitable, right? And withhold judgment. Read carefully and with your eyes open, looking for personal application to your own life. Ask yourself at every page, how is this about me? Highlight things, ask questions in the margins, share favorite bits with the people around you. Act as if these books were written and put into a time capsule specifically for you, which in some literal sense, I think they were. I think they really were. This is not a metaphor. These books are for you. And if you do that, I'm, I promise that they will both delight and instruct you. And I promise that your life will change forever for the better. I've stolen the title for today's podcast from a book by Harold Bloom, which is called How to Read and Why. And I wanted the quote of the day to be a few selected excerpts from the prologue of that book. The first little snippet of this essay that I'd like to share is actually a quote by Francis Bacon that Bloom shares in this prologue. So I guess it's a quote of the quote of the day. Francis Bacon says, Read not to contradict and confute, nor to believe and take for granted, nor to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider. I think this is really great. It highlights the fact that reading isn't really supposed to be for confuting other people's arguments, strengthening your own arguments, nor is it supposed to be for finding echoes in the world of what you already believe, kind of read to preach to your own choir, as it were. It's not to improve other people's lives. It's not even necessarily directly meant to improve your own life. It's just one of the best ways we have as humans to entertain ideas, to weigh and consider. Bloom goes on to say, quote, Do not attempt to improve your neighbor or your neighborhood by what or how you read. Self-improvement is a large enough project for your mind and spirit. I like this a lot because it's a reminder to, you know, look for the beams in our own eyes before we consider the motes in other people, people's eyes. Self-improvement, as Bloom says, is a large enough and lifelong project. And so the only moral imperatives that we should be deriving from our reading are those that we apply to ourselves and to no one else. The last little snippet of this introduction that I'd like to share with you is Bloom's quote by Dr. Samuel Johnson, who wrote in his preface to Shakespeare, This, therefore, is the praise of Shakespeare, that his drama is the mirror of life, that he who has mazed his imagination in following the phantoms which other writers raise up before him may here be cured of his delirious ecstasies by reading human sentiments in human language. Bloom's commentary on this is as follows. To read human sentiments in human language, you must be able to read humanly with all of you. You are more than an ideology, whatever your convictions. We read Shakespeare, Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Dickens, Proust, and all their peers because they more than enlarge life. We read deeply for varied reasons, most of them familiar, that we cannot know enough people profoundly enough, that we need to know ourselves better, that we require knowledge, not just of self and others, but of the way things are. Yet the strongest, most authentic motive for deep reading is the search for a difficult pleasure. There is a reader's sublime, and it seems the only secular transcendence we can ever attain, except for the even more precarious transcendence we call falling in love. This is still Bloom talking. I urge you to find what truly comes near to you that can be used for weighing and for considering. 
read deeply, not to believe, not to accept, not to contradict, but to learn to share in that one nature that writes and reads. And for more weighing and considering and other reasons and techniques for reading, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. So here we are again, new class, new books, new semester, new audience. So people listening don't know you. You are Clara Akebrand, mm-hmm. author of What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems, and The Field is White, which is a novel. That's right. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk today about Azar Nafisi's memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran, or we're going to talk about bits of it, but we're really using this book to have a more general conversation about how to read and why to read. I feel like uh, those questions are slightly condescending. I mean, everybody knows how to read. So what do we mean by that? I mean, we we need reminders all the time. Mm. We're a little bit older, but uh, we've been reading for many years and writing, but we, we need these reminders ourselves. Especially, I, I would say this happens to you, Michael, as a professor, you forget how to read or possibly... Uh, why you're reading because maybe you're just you're reading t- for a specific class for a specific lesson um, a specific topic and you might forget the right. most important reason how why to i mean there are many reasons to read that might be equally good that you just might need to adopt at different moments and different aspects and different contexts right in your life i want to spend the next few minutes with you talking about how a general reader should approach great works of literature what what one should expect to get out of them and how to get this out of them. Right. I'm starting this class, Masterpieces of World Literature 2. It spans from the Renaissance to now. Starting with this memoir of Nafisi's, it's a strange place to start. It was published in 2003, so chronologically speaking, it should be the very last thing we read. And it's a memoir, so even the genre is quite strange. But I do really think it wonderfully illustrates how and why to read and presents reading in a cultural context that is so different from ours that it might wake us up to things that we have grown blind to, as you say. And give us an appreciation for things we take for granted. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that might be, we could start there. That might be my number one. Don't take for granted the freedom to read. Anything you want. (laughs) These poor girls have to sit in this living room with Xeroxed copies of Lolita Right. Because they can't, this book can't be found. Yeah. And if they are found out, they'll get in serious, I mean, they'll be put into prison. Yeah. And tortured. Mm. And here we go, here we are, and every book, every great book ever written is that, you know, three seconds away online. Yeah. Or and, maybe is one hour away from, maybe just means getting up one hour early, possibly, <laughs> than you would usually. Yeah. <laughs> just resetting your alarm clock a little. Making the time to read. I mean, I obviously, I obviously, I know that we can't be reading twenty four seven. There are other priorities in life, you know, family and work, and yeah, all but kinds it's crazy of responsibilities. How surprisingly, little time you do need to set aside to get a lot read. Right. You don't need to read all day. Like even one hour a day, you can get so much read. You can read a book a week. Yeah. So that would be rule number one. Not rule. Advice. Piece of advice number one. Don't take for granted the freedom that you have to read whatever you want and. While you're reading these books, I'm hoping that you will constantly be pinching yourselves and reminding yourselves how lucky you are to be able to mm. be able to own these books and to read them freely and 
Yeah, and also the fact that it doesn't have to be extremely relevant to your life. It doesn't have to be always self-improvement stuff, you know? Yeah. They don't have to be practical books in any way in order to make great changes in your quality of life. These girls are reading Lolita. I mean, I feel like most people that do read, there's a lot of stuff that's more practical. Self-help books or those things are all good, but... um, these girls weren't, you know, reading a book about how to um, yeah. specifically, you know, help them with their set of problems as suppressed women in Tehran. Do you know what I mean? These books don't necessarily teach them things about how to cope with their present situation that on the surface are immediately practicable or relevant. Mm-hmm. But there is that wonderful point that they make that Nafisi makes about we read to escape intolerable reality. Yeah, I think that's almost a direct quote. We sometimes read to escape an intolerable reality. So we could put that as number two on our list. There's nothing wrong with escapism. Reading to escape. Mm-hmm. You know, that can, there, are, there are many times in our lives where we need that kind of solace or a place, a realm, a world we can walk into and leave this world behind if just, you know, as you say, for an hour a day, mm-hmm. for a few minutes a day. Right. It reminds me of that wonderful quote in Italo Calvino's book, Invisible Cities, where he says, find those things that are not inferno, that are not terrible in your life, and give them space and make them last. Mm. And a good novel can be exactly that thing. I have this quote that I wanted to read. Yep. This is when the Nafizis class is reading um, The Great Gatsby, and they're having their mock trial. What page is it on? 132. And it says, a good novel is one that shows the complexity of individuals and creates enough space for all these characters to have a voice. In this way, a novel is called democratic, not that it advocates democracy, but that by nature it is so. And that was her defense of having an array of complex characters that, you know, are not perfect. They have flaws and... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But you can't have a novel without flawed characters. You have to have, you have to have every sort of yeah aspect of a human's personality. So um, in that way, novels are democratic because they allow for all the voices. Mm-hmm. And and that's also a defense of books that are not purely optimistic. There can be very dark books that are good and still uplifting because um, in that way they're. They give voice to everything, and and to be around something that's democratic in that way, and that allows for individuality, I think, is uplifting, even if it is a dark book. Well, it's literally the opposite of tyranny. You know, it's a celebration of freedom. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of something that I'd like to read, too. It's, um, yeah, to corroborate your point, this is what Nafisi says. This is on page 47. Nabokov calls every great novel a fairy tale. Well, I would agree. First, let me remind you that fairy tales abound with frightening witches who eat children, and wicked stepmothers who poison their beautiful stepdaughters, and weak fathers who leave their children behind in forests. But the magic comes from the power of good, that force which tells us we need not give in to the limitations and restrictions imposed on us by McFate, as Nabokov calls it. So all these fairy tales aren't... Every good fairy tale has evil in it, and has wickedness in it. Mm-hmm. Why are we addicted to reading them? Well, because they they show that goodness is in some ways inextinguishable mm-hmm. or indestructible. So that 
you need that kind of evil to offset this aspect of goodness, right? So rule, I don't know what where we are now, piece of advice number three or four, don't shun a novel just because bad things happen in it or, or there are characters who are immoral. Mm-hmm. Nafisi goes on to say this, every fairy tale offers the potential to surpass present limits. So in a sense, the fairy tale offers you freedoms that rea- reality denies. In all great works of fiction, regardless of the grim reality they present, there is an affirmation of life against the transience of that life, an essential defiance. This affirmation lies in the way the author takes control of reality by retelling it in his own way, thus creating a new world. Every great work of art, I would declare pompously, is a celebration, an act of insubordination against the betrayals, horrors, and infidelities of life. The perfection and beauty of form rebels against the ugliness and shabbiness of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. This is why we love Madame Bovary and cry for Emma, why we greedily read Lolita as our heart breaks for its small, vulgar, poetic, and defiant orphaned heroine. You know, one of this kind of, I think, is the response to one of her students asks, like, is it okay? Why does reading a horrible, why does reading about such horrible things make us feel happy? why do we love reading books like Lolita, you know, and this, you know, in this semester, we're going to be reading some horrible books, arguably more upsetting than Lolita, the brothers Karamazov, Mm. King Lear, the Gulag Archipelago. Is it okay to feel such joy reading these books? I think this is her answer to this question. Yeah, there's, there's another part where she talks about empathy, that fiction is like the ultimate exercise in empathy. And I think that is one of the things that makes it so hopeful. You know, if, even if you read a book as dark and tragic as, say, Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, I mean, just one horrible thing after another happens to this poor girl, Tess. Mm. Never anything good. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really shocking. But it's a very um, strangely, I think, uplifting book, even if just in the way it awakens an empathy in me that I didn't have before. And it's life-affirming in that way for me, because I feel like I can change. There's there's room for changing, and there's a way for my heart to expand and my ability to see others and feel for others. Right. And I think that's really hopeful. I mean, not just hopeful, because I feel like I can become a better person, but hopeful in the way that anybody reading such a thing can. So I think, you know, I want us all to read looking out for these moments of affirmation. In what ways do these books affirm life? But I also think we could add, you know, where are we? Number five piece of advice. Don't be so insistent on looking for moments of affirmation that you refuse to get sad when you read these. You know, when sad things happen, cry. Right. Mourn with those that mourn. You know, there's a moment in the book where Nafisi and her students are moved to tears by the plight of this poor girl, Lolita. Mm. And Aristotle in his Poetics talks about the power of catharsis, the importance of purging an imbalance of emotions. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Why does it feel good to cry, to have a good cry? You know, there's that phrase, uh, when you watch a movie or read a book. I suspect that all of us have, we all have these underlying issues that we don't know about, uh, underlying things that are in some way weighing us down, that we might not even be able to articulate. And sometimes you read something, and that might touch exactly on that place <laughs> mm-hmm. somewhere in your psyche that that needed to find expression. Mm-hmm. 
being able to cry with a character or conf- yeah empathy exercise yeah not just empathy but yeah it's like finding finding a voice for something within you that you didn't know was <laughs> was needing to have a voice right i would say i would add to our list don't there are times when going into a novel with specific a specific lens or a specific set of questions can be good mm. and there are times when i think it's important to just let the novel do whatever it wants to do to you yeah right so don't impose themes on the novel or bring ideological lenses to it let it elicit whatever spark or reaction it's going to yeah if- don't get too married to this idea that a book is about something yeah Nafisi says, don't go chasing after the grand theme, the idea, as if it is separate from the story itself. The idea or ideas behind the story must come to you through the experience of the novel and not as something tacked onto it. She says this, a novel is not an allegory. It is the sensual experience of another world. If you don't enter that world, hold your breath with the characters and become involved in their destiny, you won't be able to empathize and empathy is at the heart of the novel. This is how you read a novel. You inhale the experience. So don't try to reduce a novel to a point or a theme or a conclusion or a message. Mm-hmm. Instead, try to live the experience that that novel is trying to recreate for you. And I really love that. She says inhale, start to inhale, mm-hmm. because it makes, uh, it, it turns the novel into an, a true real life present moment you know what i mean or experience yeah. yeah yeah as if it was made out of yeah like an, a thing that's alive that you live with right and not some tool that you can use or that you can manipulate or yeah it's practice in living right speaking of or this is a, a student mana It says here, Mana, who seemed engrossed by a passage in the book, raised her head. It's strange, she said, but some critics seem to treat the text, Lolita, the same way Humbert treats Lolita. They only see themselves and what they want to see. She turned to me and continued, I mean, the censors or some of our politicized critics, don't they do the same thing, cutting up books and recreating them in their own image? What Ayatollah Khomeini tried to do to our lives, turning us, as you said, into figments of his imagination, he also did to our fiction. Anyway, I I really love that um, she said critics, or any bad reader really, who want to force a text to be something that they want to see. Mm -hmm. They are like Humbert, (laughs) who tries to take possession of this living being. Right. Again, there's that idea of the text being like a living being. So, and you can't do that. You can't take possession of a living being and force it to be something else that it wasn't meant to be. That's that's a, the wrong way of reading a text. How would we distill that into a, a dictum? Don't don't read in a black and white sort of way. Don't don't reshape the novel in your own image or in the image that you think the novel should possess. Yeah, that's you know? good. But you're, you're mentioning black and white. This, this reminds me of another one. I really love that Nafisi insists that reading, that great books don't make moral questions simpler for us. In fact, they make moral questions more complicated. Mm-hmm. This is related to a quote that you read earlier about a novel showing us the complexity of individuals. She says, you don't read Gatsby to learn whether adultery is good or bad. 
but to learn how complicated issues such as adultery and fidelity in marriage are. A great novel heightens your senses and sensitivity to the complexities of life and of individuals and prevents you from the self-righteousness that sees morality in fixed formulas about good and evil. Right. And she goes on to say that um, that we both, uh, as readers, just like Nick, the, pro- the narrator of The Great Gatsby, we both approve and disapprove of Gatsby. Oh, yeah. You know, it's possible to love a person and hate their flaws, right? Or to pity right. a person and recognize their mistakes. Just like it's impossible to. Don't expect any of these books to make life simpler for you or to make questions of morality simpler. Yeah. If they're doing their job, if these books are doing their job well, they should make moral questions more complex. And in what way is that hopeful? I mean, not everything has to be hopeful, but strangely it is. Well, if you go through the world thinking that there are good people only and evil people only. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a recipe to to destroy every relationship in your life. I know. People I've... that you love will make mistakes. They could betray you. They could hurt you. You will go into the world and do things that betray and hurt other people. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, wait, am I good or evil? You know, you're a human, so that means that you're both. Right. It's important to recognize if you want a productive life, it's important to recognize as Solzhenitsyn says, we'll get to this at the very end of the semester, the line separating good and evil runs through the heart of every individual. Mm. So while you read, look for these nuances and celebrate them. Maybe try to adopt that into your own life, Mm. that uh, search for nuances, so that when these things happen, when humans surprise you, when a situation surprises you with its complexity, you maybe won't be so startled. You won't feel suddenly like foundationless or have some kind of great crisis. Yeah. Existential crisis. <laughs> um, why is it bad to censor books? So, you know, we're making kind of two competing lists, how to read and how not to read, mm-hmm. putting in the how not to read column. Censorship, right? Why is it bad to censor books or to put books on trial? She stages this mock trial of The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Your mom's a school teacher. And we were waiting for her one day early in our marriage, right? I can't remember. Yeah. Perusing in the elementary school, this empty elementary school, we were perusing the school library. We opened a... Art history book. It was one of those eyewitness books, you know, on art history. And someone had taken a magic marker and drawn and blacked out all the nude Greek, like David, Michelangelo's David, you know, blacked out sculptures and paintings. Mm -hmm. Why is this bad? One of the things I love the most about art is its freedom. And what also Nafizi said, every reader is free. So once you start censoring things, you take away its essential characteristic, its freedom. That's what art's for. It's, a, it's a, an exercise in freedom. And you're depriving other people of the chance to explore their freedom, and you're ex- exacerbating your own self-righteousness. Yes. And you are remaking that work of art in your own self-righteous image. Yes. It's just like trying to change or manipulate a person. It's horribly, blackly comedic that the film censor in Iran was blind. Wow, I know. You know, Shocking. So, so it's as if he was consciously or subconsciously wanting to inflict this blindness on his country at large, you know? He mm. didn't want them to see things that he thought they couldn't handle. It's patronizing. Maybe that's the first yeah. and most obvious answer is that like to pretend that kids 
in elementary school can't handle looking at Michelangelo's statue of the David. Mm. So it's like, how sheltered do you want these kids to be? And how ashamed do you want them to be of what they already know to be true? I know. It's, it's a really weird lesson to teach. If you censor a work of art, you're condescendingly assuming that the, the audience is morally or aesthetically or intellectually too immature or juvenile to handle reality. I know. And ironically, um, the censorship just really augments that work of art that's being censored, you know, and its power. It really yeah. gives so much more power to that's it. That's true. When they are having this trial, this mock trial with the great Gatsby... Here's the section I wanted to read. Just before the bell rang, Zareen, who had been silent ever since the recess, suddenly got up. Although she spoke in a low voice, she appeared agitated. She said sometimes she wondered why people bothered to claim to be literature majors. Did it mean anything, she wondered? As for the book, she had nothing more to say in its defense. The novel was its own defense. Perhaps we had a few things to learn from it, from Mr. Fitzgerald. She had not learned from reading it that adultery was good. Did people all go on strike or head west after reading Steinbeck? Did they go whaling after reading Melville? Are people not a little more complex than that? And are revolutionaries devoid of personal feelings and emotions? Do they never fall in love or enjoy beauty? This is an amazing book, she said quietly. It teaches you to value your dreams, but to be wary of them also. To look for integrity in unusual places. Anyway, she enjoyed reading it, and that counts too. Can't you see? This is a great quote. I, I think know. there's like five or six points inside that quote alone. So what do you want to highlight from that quote? I absolutely love that. Yes, of course, we do learn from books. We learn, we can learn from its characters, but the primary thing is that we should enjoy reading it. Yeah. That's, that's the main thing. I mean, that's what books are for. We'll put that as number one on the list. Read for pleasure. I mean, what writer would... Why would a writer go out and write a book that he or she didn't want um, the reader to take pleasure in? These books have lasted centuries and in some cases millennia because they're, they give pleasure. Right. I mean, that pleasure is a difficult pleasure often. It's a challenging pleasure. And yes, they also do teach us things. But if you, if you only want to teach us stuff, literature is not the way to do that. You know, microwave exactly. repair manuals do not give pleasure and therefore are not literature. I know. You know, it's the job of literature to please to delight. Mm -hmm. There's that. There's such an awesome quote by Werner Herzog, the, the filmmaker, um, where he says the telephone book is full of facts, but it doesn't <laughs> give you any kind of spiritual experience or make your heart leap. That's great. Yeah, like poetry does. Right. I love that. It's full of facts and truth. <laughs> so read for pleasure. I would exactly. definitely put that at the very, very top of the list. Everything else comes after that. Yeah. And like I would, I do want to reemphasize this point. Ple this pleasure isn't always easy, right? And it's it doesn't not... always come through uh, a joyful plot. Yeah, and it and it you have to work to attain it. It's like exercise or something, you know, like a runner's high. It's you have to. It it doesn't ha happen to you passively. Yeah. But if you put in the work, you will get the pleasure. Um, I mean, putting in the work can simply just mean open opening your heart and reading with your full attention. Totally. I mean, that's what it means. It means maybe setting the alarm half hour early so you have time, making the time. Yeah. Reading with an open mind and open eyes and an open heart. Yeah, like don't listen to the book on Audible while doing homework. Right. <laughs> no, that's something. right. Give the book your whole attention. And if you give the book your whole attention, it will, and if it's a great book, 
A great book is by definition a book which, when you give it your whole attention, it, it rewards you indefinitely. Yes, I believe that 100%. There are other wonderful bits in here, too. Oh, yeah. like That was just the number one, so I chose to go for that one first. Yeah, so pleasure, read for pleasure, but also it kind of reinforces something else that I've said. What did it teach her? It did also teach her stuff, but what did it teach her? It didn't teach her that adultery was good or bad. Because let's it, face it, people already know what's good or bad. I mean, yeah, when it comes to that, but... Uh, I love this little quote here. It teaches you to value your dreams, but to be wary of them also. So mm-hmm. again, this this nuance, the insistence on nuance, right? Yeah. The affirmation that a book will make things slightly more complex. Mm-hmm. Is following your dreams good or bad? Well, it is actually both. Oh, yeah. It is actually both. So things don't get simplified. They get complicated. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I don't know where we are on our list now, but... Uh, don't be afraid as you read that if you read about murders, you will start committing murders. <laughs> right. No one reads Moby Dick and suddenly commits an act of involuntary I wailing. I mean, don't you love that people are more complex than that? Yeah. I mean, of course, nobody's going right. to. I mean, that's, a, that's another kind <laughs> of con- condescension, too, like scribbling out the, the, the David statue. You know, I mean, you're teaching people that their minds are weak and that they need to baby themselves. Like those poor girls in the park, some of the students of Nafizis who were talking about how um, they were getting in trouble eating apples. Yeah. Um, in the park, I think. In the park. Yeah, because uh, whoever the guards was it the guards they were, they were saying they were eating the apples too seductively. And we learn from this book that this is a time and place where there are literally morality police who patrol the streets in jeeps with guns. Yeah. And will arrest. People, women, you know, probably especially. For a strand of hair falling For a strand of, of hair coming loose from their veil or eating apples too seductively or wearing nail polish or lipstick. I mean, I don't want to be guilty of making morally oversimplified arguments after just having extolled the importance of moral nuance. Mm. But there must be a connection between censorship and adults who are oversensitized and can't handle seeing a girl eating an apple. Right? Yeah. <laughs> How sad is that boy with illegal dreams? That was the saddest part, honestly. <laughs> Why is that so sad? Oh my gosh, the illegal dream. Just the idea that this horrible, horrible government could reach him all the way in his dreams. Like, that's where, right. at least that should be the the place that's always free. Like, always. Your imagination yeah. and your... Right. I think there's an analog between novels and dreams because they both are products of the imagination, right? So you sh- there, you, sh- you don't want to live under a regime in which dreams can become illegal. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to live in a regime in which works of fiction can become illegal. Yeah. So don't take for granted that if you happen to live in a free society, don't take that for granted. I know. It's like the ultimate crime against your individuality. It's horrible. It's totally horrible. And to believe that your dreams are not your own. Right. So sad. Oh, I just loved um, this quote by Nabokov where he says, Curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. Meaning what? Well, meaning, for example, these girls that um, that risked so much to come to this uh, teacher's house to read these books that were illegal, their curiosity was was this uh, pure form of insubordination that was their way of rebelling against the terrible injustice in their life. Maybe we can end with that. But before we end, I want to just highlight two more practical things. She tells her students to take notes of what she reads. She calls these reading journals, right? 
Mm-hmm. So why, what benefit do you think we get from reflecting on what we read in writing? And a corollary question, why gather a group of students together to chat about writing? What is it about a communal experience that is important? Well, first of all, I think it's totally, it's one of the greatest joys in life is talking to someone else about a thing you love. So it not only does it come natural, but, um, you know, why wouldn't you want to share with somebody a beautiful experience you had if that person also happened to have that same experience? I completely believe that we don't actually know what we're thinking until we write it down. We don't fully know how we're feeling about something. Yeah. So I think great epiphanies and revelations come to us when we articulate all these things that are going through our minds. We, You and I just finished reading E.M. Forrester's Passage to India, and actually it's, it's him, it's he, mm-hmm. that writes this extremely famous dicta, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Oh, really? How do, it's not exactly, how do I know what I think until I hear what I've said? Or how do I know what I think until I've seen what I've written? There's a version of that. Mm. He writes this in his, bo- in his book about the novel. Wow. Um, yeah, writing is a way is a me- is thinking. Yeah, and so is discussion. Yes, so is discussion. So that's why I'm having you students listening to this write down your reflections. You know, on Learning Sweep. That's why when we gather, you know, on Zoom, I'm hoping that we'll be able to bounce ideas back and forth off of each other, and even just the act of articulating an idea about the novel will help re- help you make discoveries about what you think. There's, <laughs> there are times when we. When we think we are having a really deep, extremely deep thought, <laughs> then we articulate it. It's like, oh, that actually wasn't very profound. But there are other times when you'll find yourself uh, articulating something that can totally blow your mind. Right. That's right. And you won't know until you express, try to express yourself through writing or discussing. So how to read, uh, talk, and write. That's yeah. a method of reading. Yeah. Okay, I want to finish with this. It's related to the point that you just made about curiosity and support um, insubordination. Insubordination that ri- reading is a kind of act of rebellion against tyrannies of all kinds. Mm-hmm. She finishes the Lolita section of her book, Nafisi does, by writing these two paragraphs. I asked my students if they remember the dance scene in Invitation to a Beheading. The jailer invites Cincinnatus to a dance. They begin a waltz and move out into the hall. In a corner, they run into a guard, and then she quotes from the novel itself. They described a circle near him and glided back into the cell, and now Cincinnatus regretted that the swoon's friendly embrace had been so brief. That's the end of the quote from the novel. Nafisi continues, This movement in circles is the main movement of the novel. As long as he accepts the sham world the jailers impose upon him, Cincinnatus will remain their prisoner and will move within the circles of their creation. The worst crime committed by totalitarian mindsets is that they force their citizens, including their victims, to become complicit in their crimes. Mm. Dancing with your jailer, participating in your own execution, that is an act of utmost brutality. My Mm. students witnessed it in show trials on television and enacted it every time they went out into the streets dressed as they were told to dress. They had not become a part of the crowd who watched the executions, but they did not have the power to, to protest them either. The only way to leave the circle to stop dancing with the jailer is to find a way to preserve one's individuality, that unique quality which evades description but differentiates one human being from the other. Reading 
Why, why should we read? Because it helps us maintain, preserve, develop, and celebrate our individuality, our own imaginations, our own experiences, our own minds. And that's the greatest type of freedom. So to summarize, how to read and why. Read for pleasure. Read to exercise empathy. Read to celebrate curiosity and its act of insubordination. Don't try to possess or control the, the novel. Mm -hmm. Or the text that you're reading. Yeah, let it speak to you as it is. Yes. Give it, let it have its own voice. Don't censor things. Don't put things on trial. Don't be self-righteous. Mm -hmm. And definitely use writing, journaling, and discussion mm -hmm. as a way to read the text as well. Uh, look for moments of affirmation, even in the darkest things that you read. Yes. Don't expect only happy endings to be life-affirming. Yes, and mourning with those that mourn in a sad ending can be affirmative in its yes. own way. Yes. Um, I'm sure we said more, which I've forgotten. Yeah. The end. <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed that chat and that you remember this conversation as we move into some of the most beautiful, provocative, challenging, and life-changing books really ever written. This semester we'll be reading Shakespeare, Cervantes, Dickens, Mary Shelley, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Kafka, Virginia Woolf, and many others. And I think Nafisi's book teaches us how to approach works like this. I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs>